an appropriate introduction to our time tonight in the sixth chapter of John, a bit of a whirlwind tour. The title of tonight's message is Feasting on the Bread of Life. We're going to read here shortly John 6, 47 through 60, but I'm going to take us through a little bit of the context of the entire chapter, uh, entire sixth chapter. We just finished singing some really great Trinitarian songs, songs that talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It's important to sing songs that have an accurate representation of who God is. And this passage is a wonderful passage because it's a Trinitarian passage. You've got God the Father, you've got Christ clearly claiming to be God and God the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit revealed working through Christ in his ministry. Communion's an interesting thing, this Lord's Supper. In fact, in the, in the early church, this, I find this interesting. The Roman government actually accused Christians in the early church of what they thought to be illicit love feasts. You may use your imagination, or not. Uh, they didn't know what these Christians were doing behind closed doors. Weirdos. Mind you, at that time, there were a lot of sort of house religions, Gnostic sects, people that kind of, you know, got behind closed doors, secret handshake, funny hat, knock on the door, say the password, come in, sacrifice the bull, you know, get the secret knowledge, become one with the energy. A lot of that stuff going on. And when this new sect of Judaism called the Way, Christianity, got on the scene, the Roman government thought, these people are really weird. They're not just sacrificing a bull, but they're actually engaging in cannibalism. They're eating some dude's body, drinking some guy's blood. Well, of course, in our day and age, in our culture, most folks know that that's not what's happening in our services. But I think it's important that we, to some extent, recover the scandal of what's going on here. Now, this is not the real body of Christ. It's not the real blood of anyone. But by faith, spiritually, this is a sign and symbol of an inward reality. This is a sign and symbol of what God's doing. And I guarantee if you try to explain it to one of your friends who's not a Christian, it's going to sound a little weird. The world really only has two reactions to this strange thing that we're doing tonight. Celebrating and then spiritually eating body and blood to laugh or to gasp. So I'd like to say welcome tonight to the weirdos in the room, the wanderers, and the workers. I think I fall into all three of those categories. Weird, often wandering, And sadly, too often thinking I can work my way to God. Tonight, we're gathered as a needy and a broken body, simultaneously joined together as a provided for and a whole body. We're gathered in response to our Lord's invitation, feed on me and you will be whole. By faith, we see that the sign and the symbol of the supper satisfy us. Tonight, this is God's Grace for us, symbolized. But in a very real way, it is God's grace for us because we're here, we're together. Some are having the best week they can remember in a long time. Others barely made it through the door. And this is God's grace to us by faith to be together and to be satisfied with the reality of God's love and redemption in Christ as it is pictured for us. This meal is a reminder of our spiritual state in Jesus. It is for the hungry And it is for the weak. So let's get into our text. John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. You may already have done that. So you're ahead of me. 
John chapter 6, and I'm going to start in verse 47. Could have started, maybe should have started in verse 34, but that would have been a little long. Verse 47, I tell you the truth, Jesus says, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Well, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. A theological debate broke out. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, on hearing this teaching, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Let's pray again. Lord, your word is powerful to cut us and to build us and to mold us, to do surgery on our hearts. I pray you would do that tonight. Lord, I pray that even on a, even on short preparation, that your word would speak powerfully to us, God. We, we need to hear your voice by the power of your spirit through your word. We need uh, words of law to condemn our sin and words of gospel to remind us who we are in Christ. New creations, the old is gone, the new has come. Pray that this supper and your word to us would be a vivid reminder of that. In your name we pray, amen. So I'm going to read a quick caveat for you. The reference to the Lord's Supper in this text is only indirect. This passage is best understood as pointing to the spiritual reality, the promise that the Lord's Supper signifies, which is union with Christ and the reception of all the benefits of salvation through him. The only point in reading that is to remind us that Jesus is not here directly referring to the Lord's Supper because he has not yet instated the Lord's Supper. But who is his audience? Let's find out. Let's get into the context. Beginning of John chapter 6. Turn your Bible back. Look at the top of that little big 6. Little relative to other things. Big relative to the other text in your Bible. Jesus feeds 5,000. Now, 5,000 men, most likely, so women and children included, many more than that. Who's his audience? Well, he's in Galilee. So, most likely, those who are children of Israel, Jews. And in this feeding of the 5,000, in some ways, Jesus is reenacting, miraculously, the provision that the Israelites received in the desert, manna. Many commentators point this out, that this miraculous sign of the feeding of the multitudes, it's more than just, hey, Jesus is better than an outburger. He will represent five loaves, two fish, and you will never go hungry again. It's more than that. 
Jesus is showing his audience, a Jewish audience, they probably woke up that morning and sang a psalm, remembering all the things the Lord had done, remembering that God had provided manna for his people in the wilderness. And here they are wandering. They're enslaved by the Roman government, and they hate that slavery. And now they're being provided for beyond their wildest dreams. They ask, could this be the prophet? Shall we make him king? The prophet being referred to is Moses. And then later on in chapter 6, starting in verse 16, we have Jesus walking on the water. Now, interestingly, some commentators will point out that this is not the same instance as we find in Luke and Matthew because there's no mention of Jesus calming the storm. John is developing an exodus motif here. There's no mention of the calming of the storm. It just says Jesus got on the boat, they were terrified, boop, they reached land. Now, maybe he calmed the storm, maybe he didn't, because it says the sea was rough, but it's not mentioned. The focal point of the story is that he walked on water. And where do we have the people of God in the process of their redemption, in the history of their redemption, passing on dry land through tumultuous waters? The Red Sea. Now, at the end of these two signs, the people cross the lake when they realize Jesus is not there in the morning, and they come with what appears to be affection for Christ and allegiance. But not really. They're, they're fronting, as we do, oftentimes. In fact, they demand a greater sign. And on top of that, they want not only a sign to confirm that this is the new Moses, the real prophet, the king, the Messiah, but they want to know what they need to do. What work must we do? What about us? How do we approach this table tonight? How do we approach this table? We've seen God do great things. We've seen God feed. We've seen the Lord walk on water in our lives. We believe by faith these stories are true. How do we come to this table? Do we come assuming that this table is a table where we do work? Do you do work at this table? No, you don't. You come to receive the body and the blood. The body broken and the blood spilled. That's the death of Christ. But the resurrected body that is promised through the bread that we eat and the blood which points forth to the marriage supper of the Lamb that we will have someday in heaven. Our redemption is pictured. We don't come here to do work. We come to receive the message of God's grace to us. God's work is to believe in the one he sent. That's what Jesus tells us in verse 29. So that's a little bit of context. Now on to this idea that John is developing here, this bread as flesh, his own flesh, because he is the bread of life, and the blood. What does it mean? In fact, two times in this chapter, verse 35 and verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And some of you will probably know that this is the beginning of excuse me, the beginning of a host of I am statements that happen in the book of John. Leading up to the climax where the Lord says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus says that he is the bread of life. What did he mean? Well, we read the text, and so I'll be pointing to some highlights. First, Jesus says, you will eat and not die. Now, can we just try to put ourselves, I know most of us here love Jesus, but let's just try to be in the shoes of these people. They followed the Lord. They saw something cool. Jesus was the miracle lunchbox. 
Right? The disciples were terrified. They got to see their Lord walk on water. But now he's a little crazy. He's maybe a little drunk on power. The fame has gone to his head. Now he's starting to say crazy stuff. Your forefathers ate the manna that God gave to save them, a picture of the salvation that was coming, but they died. You shall eat of my flesh, for I am the bread of life, and you will not die. Now, let's be real. Someone comes up to you on the street, and let's say they're really excited, and they've got like about 15 layers on and a nice funny little hat, and they're smiling, they got three teeth, and they give you a piece of bread. Eat this and you will not die. Chances that you're going to believe that person are very small. To this audience, what the Lord Jesus was saying was extremely radical. And yet, in the very offering of bread that one would eat and not die, Jesus is symbolizing and proclaiming that the curse, the curse that all men and women, sons and daughters of Adam, have inherited since Genesis 3, will be overturned. The bread that you eat, which is Christ himself, and do not die, is a symbol of the promise of the curse being overturned. Jesus is showing us exactly what Paul reminds us of in the middle of Romans, that he is the second Adam, and what the same author John later reminds us about in Revelation, where we hear in Revelation 7 that those who pass through the judgment of God will hunger no more and thirst no more. Why? Because they will be at the throne of God. They will be united to God by grace. He also says the blood, Jesus' blood, my blood, is a real drink. And it does. It, it not only points backward to the blood of animals shed, which any Jew would have fully understand the way this system works. You have sin, you need to deal with it. God is holy, you're not. Blood must be spilt. But it also points forward to the blood of Christ, the saving real blood of Christ that would be spilled for us on the cross. His atonement is pictured in this passage. For the people of of Israel, blood was a life source. It was a life source. To speak of your blood meant to, in some sense, drink the essence of who you are. Jesus says that his food will be for the life of the world. Up until the point of Christ, and this is what we're celebrating at the Lord's Supper, up until the point of Christ, the salvific plan of God, God's plan of salvation for his people, was limited to a specific nation state of wandering Semitic peoples. A very small and rather insignificant people group in the ancient Near East, who never at any one time, A, had much power, or B, even possessed all of the land that God had promised. And yet Jesus says that as the bread of life, the food that comes from him is for the life of the world. Not just a nation state, but heavenly manna for all nations. He also says that we are to remain in him. It's the same idea of abiding that we see in 1 John. And we will be raised up. I think of John chapter 3, 14 and 15, before we get to that famed verse, where Jesus says, As the serpent was raised up in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What happened? The Israelites grumbled, just like we see them doing here. And God said, You're under my judgment. Snakes came, started biting people. Not good. People started to die. Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said, 
Hold this golden snake up, and all who look upon it will be saved. Jesus says, that's me. You partake of me. You come into union with me. If by my grace you are drawn, and you and I become one in relationship, then that same promise is yours. The Lord's Supper points to our union with Christ. That's what I'm getting at. It points to our union with Christ. So we've talked about this before. The Lord's Supper points to the entirety of our salvation. It points to our being justified because we see the body and the blood of Christ broken and spilled out that his righteousness might stand in our place. It points to us being sanctified because it reminds us that as we put bread and juice into our mouths and ingest them, we are united to Christ. And it points to the resurrection. It points to the time when the people of God will hunger and thirst no more. Could the Jews of this day imagine a more scandalous gospel? God the Son served on a platter for sinners. Words like those need to shake us because this is scandalous. And we've, you know, we Christianize it. And if you're like me, I, I mean, it makes sense to me. I've been partaking of the Lord's Supper for many years, but it was absolutely a scandal. In the Lord's Supper, we see the kingdom community acting as a redemptive force in society. This Lord's Supper is for the life of the world. Another story about Christians in the early church. Few of you have heard this story, but and if you've seen any movies about, say, the Spartans, for example, uh, you know that they had some pretty strict rules about which babies were allowed to live and which babies weren't. So there's a movie that came out recently, can't remember the name, but a baby is held up over a cliff and mm, defect toss. Now the Christians were those in Rome who got in boats and went under bridges and started rowing around. And as babies with defects were tossed off the bridge, oftentimes there were Christians ready to rescue those children. That is because the kingdom community of God exists to be united with Christ who gives us food that we might exist for the life of the world. To show the world that there is a way to live and to value life and to value what God has done and to value creation and to value those who are different than us that really just, I mean, it really doesn't make sense in the world. And if it does make sense to someone in the world, then they're not living consistently. We see that there is grumbling, argument, and desertion. So we're going to develop two roads. One is the road of the grumbling, arguing deserters, the wide road. The other road is the road of those who recognize God's sovereignty, understand what Jesus is talking about, and confess him as Christ. On four occasions in this chapter, on four occasions, those crowds, those listeners, grumble against Jesus. And grumble, it's not just that they're going, like making some weird sound. They're angry, man. This guy's crazy talk, eating flesh and craziness. They grumble against him. Verse 41, 52, 61, and 66. But they're in the wilderness, and they totally misunderstand what Jesus is saying. They take every word of his literally. We know because of the life of Christ that, you know, at the Lord's Supper, Jesus did not dip his finger in the bowl and have Peter chew on it. No one ever ate the physical body of Christ or physically drank his blood. He's speaking of spiritual realities, but they missed it. And they're grumbling and they're wanting to be 
just have law heaped upon them, they missed the spiritual reality of what is represented as a sign and a symbol before us. Some argued sharply, it says, maybe teachers of the law, perhaps Pharisees, Sadducees, lawyers, we don't know. Those who knew the law, they argued sharply over this teaching of Christ. Well, why? What's the big deal? Aside from the fact that it's weird to us. Well, it's, it's more than weird. Because God had given his law to the people. And the book that may teach us more about the holiness of God than any other book and how that's to be reflected in our actions in the Old Testament is Leviticus. And in Leviticus, it states very clearly that we are to drink the blood of no human being nor to eat the flesh of any human being. And so Jesus stands up there and says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And these folks who had come, they'd come from the big lunch. They'd heard the story about this guy walking on water. But now they had a real problem. It seems as if Jesus is contradicting the law. Of course, he's not doing that at all, but they missed the point. It says that many disciples despised the difficulty of the teaching and turned back. Now, we just sang about the sufferings of Christ, as if we can find hope, and we can, in the sufferings of Christ. Some of you in here are le- many of you in here are leaders. Leaders in your homes, men and women. Leaders in your families, leaders at your jobs. Can you imagine having a group of people who loves you, and then you teach them the most glorious part of the whole message. Hey guys, it's a lot better than a big lunch. You get to be united to the triune God forever in sinless perfection, feeding on his eternal love for you by the work that I'm going to do. God the Son being broken and spilled out for you. And they despise the difficulty of the teaching. Reminds us something that Ryan's told us many times. We are hopelessly meritorious hopelessly looking for some work. It was just too much for them. It was just too much for them to believe that God would do it all. Well, there's got to be something we do. But no, that's not the gospel. It's not the gospel at all. I wonder if we grumble. Do you grumble? Um, Not me, of course. Argue? Nope, never. Especially since I got married. Haven't argued once. Let's see ourselves in these cultured Jewish despisers of Christ. We shouldn't go a step further until we see ourselves as a voice in the crowd yelling out crucify or a voice in this crowd arguing with the other wannabe intellectuals about what he really means. We are grumblers and we are forgetters. Makes it even more powerful to think in those terms about what our Lord has given us in spite of our grumbling or no to remember what Jerem Barr said because of our grumbling because he knows what forgetters and grumblers we are he has compassion on us mercy on us lastly there were some who understood and confessed In the same way that there are four occasions that we see the Jews grumbling, there are four occasions where Jesus reminds the crowds that they need to listen because it's only the Father who gives, the Father who wills, the Father who draws, and the Father who enables. In fact, we see amidst the darkness of these hearers a compassionate teacher who shines light 
Some of you are like me. If the person you told it to doesn't get it the first time, you're starting to quote that verse about wipe the dust off my feet. You know, you didn't get it. Later, you're condemned. Jesus stays with these people, teaching them. They grumble. He teaches. They argue. He teaches. They desert him. He continues to preach the gospel. He shows great compassion. He repeats his explanations. He is a shepherd to sheep. He lets the little children come to him. Dare we not approach this table with the pride of thinking that we are adults? We are little children. And oh, how I wish some of us could link up a microchip to the back of our heads and put a TV on the back of your head so we could all see all the crazy thoughts that we have all day long. And we'd still wear collared collared shirts to church, but we probably wouldn't hang our head quite as high. We are children in need of the Lord. Peter, at the end of this passage, on behalf of the twelve, he confesses humble belief and knowledge in the sole authority of his Lord. But by the time we've gotten to this part of the story, there are so few left. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? By the grace of God, that is how we approach the Lord's table tonight, the body and blood of Christ. Lord, you know the sick sin that is in my life. The thoughts, oh, the thoughts, and even some of those thoughts that come into fruition. If church people knew, Jesus knows. And yet he invites us to his table, not as hypocrites, but as the redeemed who would repent and believe and not change by our own strength, but be changed by his grace. Do we trust a sovereign God? Sure. Do we understand that this is not the physical, but the spiritual reality? Yes. Do we confess that he is Lord like Peter? We do. Then in the same way, in the same way that you saw yourself as a grumbling person in the crowd, then now see yourself in grace. Now see yourself as a recipient of the grace of God. Let us partake of this feast as we remember the meal that was, the meal that is, and the meal that is to come. May this bread and juice point us by faith to the bread and water of life where we will hunger no more and thirst no more. And may this meal by faith be grace to us Not a stumbling block as it was to those who did not have ears to hear. But by faith in Christ, may it be a reminder that the work of God for us is only to believe. That's what we'll do then. We will indulge. We will feast. We will come like children with confidence in the fullness of the promise of our great God. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. Thank you for your word to us in John chapter 6. Thank you for these pictures of the exodus and salvation which you have shown us point to you. You are the true bread from heaven. You are the true prophet, priest, and king. You have control over nature and even the nature of our own hearts for the Father draws us to you where you invite us to feast on you. By faith we might spiritually enter into union with you and know that we are set free. 
regardless. That, it's scandalous, Lord, because some of us came here tonight and we don't deserve this. We just don't. We came, we came fighting, we came with whatever did yesterday that we're still feeling guilty about today. We came with thoughts, we came with an argument in the car, we came with a little white lie at work. But may we not be crushed under the condemnation of that guilt, but instead look to the cross and see you as our hope and our redemption. That's right, we don't deserve this meal, but it's not ours to give in the first place. It is yours to give. So help us that we might not grumble, that we might not miss the point, that we might not despise difficult teaching, but that this difficult teaching at which the world laughs and gasps, at this difficult teaching, we might see your glory and we might find joy and we might be a body of Christ united for the life of the world. Pray these things in Jesus' name.